You are listening to Money on the Left, the official podcast of the Modern Money Network Humanities Division, or MMNHD. Today we're chatting with David Freund, Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland and author of Colored Property, State Policy and White Racial Politics in Suburban America, an award-winning book that tracks how the language of racial exclusion was recoded in terms of markets, property, and citizenship in the post-World War II era. We speak with David about his research on the history of public policy and economic ideology in the United States, and the role that heterodox economic thinking has played in shaping his research agenda. We talk at length about colored property, as well as his current book project, State Money, which offers a history of financial policy and free market ideology in the modern United States. Thanks to David for joining us and to Alex Williams for producing the episode. Okay, David Freund, welcome to Money on the Left. Thank you. Very nice to be here. you start us off by giving us a brief summary of your personal and professional background? Sure. I am a uh, child of um, Los Angeles in the 1970s, the suburbs of Los Angeles. I went to college at Berkeley. I worked in publishing and journalism for a little bit and food service. And then I um, started a PhD program in history. Um, I started in Europe, I switched to the study of the United States, and wound up writing a book about, go figure, the politics of white suburbanization, um, Hmm. white flight, and racial segregation. And one thing that is, uh, that might be of interest is that I was, uh, I guess, technically trained as a cultural historian. I was studying in the 1990s when the, the field of what's now called whiteness studies was taking shape. Uh, but I had a really deep interest in political economy, which stemmed in part from my um, long-term interest in the origins of capitalism. And that has clearly come to the fore in my work, um, both in my first uh, uh, book and in, in the new project, on um, the new project, which is called State Money. Okay, so since then, um, right, I've been working on, um, since writing um, the book on white suburbanization, I've been working on the history of uh, financial policy, the history of money and powerful myths about money in the state. That's really kind of the the anchor of what I'm doing right now. Cool. So you sort of reference it there, but we're wondering what questions and or problems in your historical research brought you to the study of money and to heterodox economics in particular. Right. My first book, it's called Colored Property. Um, it's centered on a story about the federal government's role in creating a racially segregated housing market in the United States after World War II. Uh, Many people might be familiar with the story of the Federal Housing Administration and redlining. It's actually in recent years become uh, become a a public discussion about it, which is actually pretty exciting for those of us who study it. Um, And ultimately, that's a story about debt instruments, mortgage lending, mortgage instruments in particular, and how debt is created. So while I'm writing this book, I was really struck by conventional treatments of debt, Uh, specifically economists and most historians described debt, and still do, as distinct from money. And meanwhile, they argued that neither money nor debt were essential to the productive process. In other words, they insisted that growth, economic growth, was a product 
of a bunch of real sector variables like access to resources, technology, demand, and the like. And that money just helped people organize those variables by facilitating the exchange. So money, in their narrative, is a commodity token. And meanwhile, debt help, helps people make contractual arrangements to exchange these tokens. And so in this conventional story that I was seeing while writing this book, um, I saw the real action in the economy was coming from individuals' choices about what they wanted to make, buy, and sell. Whereas financial instruments, the, the mortgage instruments that I was studying, or the mortgage contracts I was studying, those instruments themselves were sort of like props in this story. Um, and if their supply is just right, it makes the, the real sector processes go smoothly. Now, I'm not trained as an economist, nor was I trained as an economic historian. And so as I was encountering those, um, those treatments of it, that story about money and debt, this seemed really odd to me as a student of this subject. The documentary evidence that I was encountering showed me that government policy was creating debt instruments, and that those debt instruments were then creating conditions under which new homes were literally being built. So public policy was creating wealth. Meanwhile, I saw how those policies explicitly channeled that new wealth primarily to white people, especially to white men. People of color and single women were usually denied these new mortgages, and this was by federal mandate. So to me, that suggested that the government was creating wealth for some and not for others. Again, I'm just a, you know, a, a, a modest historian. I'm not an economist, right? Um, but economists and plenty of historians were disagreeing with me, and they still do. They argue that by insuring loans, federal policies were merely helping to unleash market forces that produced wealth in housing. And they argue this, again, because they insist that money and debt are not intrinsically productive. So that's the origin story of my current project. Um, since completing Colored Property, I've become a student of monetary theory, um, 20th century monetary policy, and the relationship between financial policy and, again, and popular ideas about money. And I'm arguing in this new book, it's called State Money, that our persistent myths about money are deeply intertwined with the politics and policy of finance. One more note on my, on my first book to clarify that. So in Colored Property, I, I basically argue that myths about housing segregation, um, the myth that it's not about race, but rather about economics, right? That those myths have been created in large measure by the very policies and politics that segregated housing in the first place. And so in this new book, I'm exploring a comparable dynamic now on the larger topic of popular myths about money. So just to follow up and clarify, is it is your sense that both um, um, historians who don't necessarily foreground their politics and more critical or even Marxist historians uh, all fall into this trap of of seeing the histories that you're tracing in this particular way? Uh, qualified, uh, qualified most, I would say. Um, there's there are traditions of historical writing that are very, very attuned to money's credit function, especially um, historians of the long 16th century, most famously people like um, Fernand Bardell. Um, there are economic historians who've written about this and have always been kind of held on the margin, people like uh, Charles Kindleberger and um, John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, and there's a new generation of scholars. For example, Chris Dessan's Making Money is Essential Reading on this subject. 
and there's a group of early Americanists and historical sociologists who were doing very exciting work on debt markets, banking, and popular protest over currency reform. Along the way, there have been people who have documented this story about credit money, but not called it that. Um, but those are the exceptions to the rule. And by and large, especially people who are writing about 20th century economic history in the U.S. and development, they are very much wedded to what I call an orthodox or neoclassical model of money. Yes. It seems like you're pretty convinced that, that historians of all stripes can learn from heterodox economics. Do you, do you think they can learn especially from, or, or what do you think they can specifically take away from um, things like post-Keynesianism and, and modern monetary theory? Hmm, that is a big one, uh, and it is potentially boundless. It is <laughs> what I think about most of the time when I'm not thinking about other things, um, as, uh, as you folks uh, probably know. Um, okay, um, and it's the case because historians, like I said, generally work from orthodox or neoclass neoclassical assumptions about the economy all the time, even when they're not citing the work of economists or invoking their... Um, their their findings it's sort of the you know it's the pool that most people swim in intellectually um but i i can i think suggest maybe two big takeaways that maybe will be useful to answer that question um to, to get historians to recognize why it's important at the very least to consider these challenges and the first one is my standard appeal to historians which is that orthodox economic models are grounded in a story about finance that did not happen. And that should really upset them as historians. <laughs> um, we cannot document, I'm not telling you folks something here um, that you don't know, but we cannot document historically the origins story about money and credit that undergirds basic textbook economics. Um, again, economists insist that money has its origins in barter, and that credit forms develop later to further facilitate this butter-like exchange. Yet we know that this is not true. Archaeologists, sociologists, a core, like I mentioned, of European historians, um, and a bunch of historically-minded economists have persuasively documented this for generations. Um, as folks on uh, Money in the Left know, it turns out that money has its origin in debt instruments, uh, basically in IOUs. Um, and when orthodox economists are presented with this evidence, they say, in effect, well, nah, money must have had its origins in barter because, well, that's what all the models are based in, so we're sticking with it. So, again, uh, historians should not pay their, put their trust in an economic conceptual universe that's grounded in a fiction about money. That just doesn't make sense. So that's my first sort of – that's how I generally try to appeal to historians who have not been introduced to this, um, these debates. The second big takeaway um, hits home, I find, because so many because scholars um, it speaks to so many people's research agendas, and that is that economic heterodoxy. And you know, we could talk about the the range of debates within post Keynesianism, and um, but we don't have to. Um, but economic hmm. heterodoxy in general explores this very fluid boundary between the so-called public and private sectors. It demonstrates, and that's, that's just so fundamentally important for scholars in so many subfields, um, it demonstrates that modern economic systems are inseparable from state structures. 
Um, again, we can talk later about my current work on American financial policy, and maybe I can explore some of that. But the larger point is really inescapable. Never in the history of capitalism have there been purely free markets for anything. That's pretty profound and challenges a lot of conventional wisdom, right? Um, state authority and moreover state resources have always been integral to capitalist growth and the allocation of its benefits. So these heterodox traditions of economic thought um, have always reckoned with this and they provide tools, I think, with which we can better understand that, that fluidity and expose it. Um, so that's a that's a way of answering your boundless question in sort of categories rather than with with specifics because it's really I mean seriously we could just talk for days about that. <laughs> well, boundless and motivated, I gotta say, you know, I'll speak for myself, but but the the, the very two points that you've described, I think I've found you know uh, relevant in considering in my own writing and research on this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and and another aspect of it, um, you know, in the, in the field of rhetoric, and another, I'm sure it's true also in in history, is um, sort of making a compelling case about what heterodox economists can learn in turn from historians and rhetoricians, oh, yeah. other humanists. Well, that one is yeah. Um, do Similarly, about do, do you want me to speak to that? Please. I, 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 Again, boundless, I'll answer this one with an anecdote. In my um, pretty extensive discussions with um, heterox economists um, in, for now, almost nine, ten years, um, having them read my stuff and certainly studying their stuff, and, and especially those who, are, who have written about um, the history of, of central banking and financial markets, I've discovered a few places where they have blind spots because they are more focused on the mechanics of contemporary financial markets. And sometimes they have overlooked what I think are um, historically really um, key transitions or formative moments. And for in my case, it's the question about the, the creation of um, federal debt. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the expansion of federal debt during World War One and how this helps to lead to this kind of fundamental transformation in the way the Fed operates. It's not that they don't know about this. It's just that they actually haven't devoted that much time to it in their accounts of, of um, the history and the workings of the Fed, in part because they're just focused on a different set of questions. So it's one of the, sure, you know, kind of countless places where um, heterodox economists can learn from us. And um, there's a really, there's a, there's a huge debate among folks who work on this about the – this is the other thing that keeps me up at night. See, I get no sleep because all these things keep me up. Um, <laughs> is the relationship between the public and the, and the private, which I already mentioned, um, between public and private money. And I'm still sort of, um, sort of battling that out, sometimes in real time, sometimes in my head with MMTers. Um, so I think there's a, there, are a lot of, um, there are a lot of places where we can learn from each other. Was that diplomatic? It was. Well done. <laughs> Till I get my money right oh, I had a dream I could buy my way to heaven When I woke I smit that on a necklace oh, I told God I'll be back in a second Man it's so hard not to act reckless To whom much is given much is tested Get arrested guess until he get the message oh, I feel the pressure under more scrutiny And what I do act more stupidly oh, Bought more jewelry, more Louis V. My mama couldn't get through to me. 
the drama, people suing me. I'm on TV talking like it's just you and me. I'm just saying how I feel, man. I ain't one of the Cosby's. I ain't go to hell, man. I guess the money should have changed them. I guess I should have forget where I came from. So to dive in a little bit to your first book, which you've mm. glossed really nicely already, um, Color Property, State Policy and White Racial Politics in Suburban America, to say it again. Um, I was wondering if you could explain for us and for our listeners how your attention to money and debt instruments in the book complicate our understandings of mid-20th century American racism specifically. Right. Interesting. Um, And this is great. My answer to that question now is far more developed than it was when the book appeared in 2007. Um, At the time, I presented it in sort of lay terms, again, arguing that federal programs, by insuring debt, created wealth for whites while simultaneously popularizing the narrative that government assistance was not creating wealth, that it was not segregating neighborhoods, um, and that it was not impoverishing people of color. So basically, I argued that the programs masked the racial assumptions that structured a new market for housing. Since I have taken the deep dive into the world of um, financial markets and understanding the mechanics of money, I can now put a lot um, more analytical meat on those bones. Sorry for that metaphor. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can take that one out if you like. Um, basically, and here's how I would describe it now. Um, Federal credit policy, these are called selective credit programs, and the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, was the most prominent, the best known. These policies manufactured financial assets, namely home loans, that otherwise would not have been created. They enabled private lenders to create checking deposits, right? And that's how money is created by private institutions. Um, And they did that by promising to pay off those loans should the borrower default, So the U.S. Treasury promised to cover bankers' losses, and so naturally bankers said, okay, I'll take that risk, right? It wasn't much of a risk. Along the way, bankers obviously made a lot of money. So did home builders. So did all the suppliers of materials that helped construct the modern suburb, from oil and plastics to appliances and home furnishings. And finally, millions of Americans got access to homeownership for the first time, because the terms of these new mortgages were very generous. They low down payments, they were amortized. The federal government restructured the mortgage market as it insured it. We don't need to go into the details of that, but that's what made it, made it so, um, that's what made it viable and so profitable. So again, that happened only because the federal state made a certain kind of home loan on very specific terms, right, into a very liquid investment. They asserted state power and they use state resources to secure those investments' value and marketability. So that is, the, that is where um, money is fundamentally changing the way that resources are being distributed by race. And here's, here's the second part of that. Because magically, they also, by embracing orthodox economic ideas about money, they described what they were doing as purely market-driven. They insisted, and many historians still buy this line, that government mortgage programs did not create wealth because all they did was help money circulate more efficiently. Again, the the story is that they unleashed pent-up demand and let the real sector of the economy do the heavy lifting. Now, again, that story only holds up if you imagine that money and credit are distinct. 
and if you believe that credit is not economically productive. And if you buy that story, then you can erase the fact that the modern housing market in America is literally hardwired to be racially discriminatory. The housing economy, as I write um, in the book, was, I call it, racially constructed. And so rethinking money and debt helps us to see how this was achieved. And it really brings home the larger point that racism is not a sentiment, a misplaced belief system, but rather a structure that is embedded in modern life. Clearly, you're not the first scholar uh, and first historian to be telling the story of uh, 20th century American racism in a systemic way. Oh, no, 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 no. Long tradition. Indeed. So my question is, how does money and debt as system potentially change or problematize other stories of 20th century systemic racism that have been researched and told and taught. Mm, boy, oh, that's another, that's another huge one. Um, for me, example, for let me think about. Um, I mean, one of the places that I've been I've been really focused on that is the relationship between the this um, story about federal policy and federal sort of debt creation and um, local. So much of the work on the structures of racism has. Well, the, 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 to the degree that I move in so-called urbanist circles, so much of that work is local case studies about local and um, state-level politics. So one of the things that I'm really curious about, and I really haven't thought it through yet, is how thinking about um, money as uh, systemically as created and distributed in racially kind of discriminatory ways, then translates into the circulation of those monetary instruments in local economies. I don't have anything profound to say about that, but I do think, and but there are people doing absolutely stunning work on things like um, local real estate markets um, and um, like the history of um, of um, of uh, slum lords and um, the politics of local bond financing. That ultimately, if we can integrate sort of a heterodox understanding of money as a credit instrument, I think that's going to raise some really important questions about that dynamic again between the kind of this, the, 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 level, the level of the monetary sovereign and the level of how people um, use um, money instruments locally. The other one, and this is again pretty wide open, is that there's this huge, it's really exciting literature about uh, discrimination within so-called um, welfare programs on the one hand, and also in um, federal spending for the allocation of, um, for the creation of um, um, whole industries in post-war America. I mean, the Sun Belt is in, in large part a creation of federal spending um, and the military industrial complex. So there are, um, I mean, there's so many, again, that's a pretty big one. There's so many, um, there's so much literature that, extant literature on those structures of discrimination that I think could be um, warrants to be revisited in light of the idea that, again, that money is um, is not just a circulating medium, but it's kind of a productive force. That was a less eloquent answer. That's so interesting because it seems like specifically with the example of the local case study along the more urbanist model Mm -hmm. that 
your framework and the broader heterodox monetary framework perhaps will open up the question of institutional and structural racism to more federal democratic um, contestation. Is that your sense of perhaps where the integration of this sort of monetary lens is is pointing towards? When you say federal democratic contestation, what do you mean by that? So in the sense that, for example, local bondholders or a local real estate market is always integrated into the the federal, federal structures of banking regulation right. and finance in ways that are more influential and and perhaps even more causal than some i mean certainly that i've read yeah. have suggested no i think that's right i think that's i think that's spot on you answered that question very well thank you <laughs> no seriously i think that that is that is the um that's the place where um, where one of the places that people can explore this. I mean, I will say, as someone who's written a book that's both about federal policy and local places, um, the second half of Colored Property is a local case study. Oh boy, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's really. T- <laughs> I mean, it just kind of t- and it takes forever. So I'm hoping that there's um, that we can create um, you know the incentives for people to bring those two stories together. I think there's a there's a practical reason why people why people have often segregated those two in addition to the important interpretive angle that heterodoxy brings to that. David, I'm curious to to know the extent to which in your studying this history and and colored property um you got a sense that whether you got a sense that 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 the very people who were being discriminated against or, or who were most affected negatively or maybe even positively by by the discriminatory policy that's baked into a policy that was presenting as non-discriminatory right. the extent to which those people recognized and and talked about and and uh you know tried to do something about what was happening and 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 you know okay so i guess my question is were there people speaking up against this at the time and clearly identifying it and and were, were their voices suppressed or, or what happened yeah that's a huge story it's a um a subplot of my book which is really about the way that white people interpreted it right i have a very very brief discussion of the amazing uh work that was done by um by activists and scholars um both black and white to challenge these programs. And that's a, that's a really well-developed um, story. Um, I could point you to people who've written really um, uh, brilliant stuff about that. So a lot of people are reacting to it um, and critiquing it. And there's some early critiques of it that if you break them down, like Robert Weaver's um, work before he took over at HUD um, and, um, and Charles Abrams and a bunch of um, housing activists and civil rights activists were sort of developing a <clears throat> what you might say is a kind of heterodox understanding of the role of state power. Um, that is not the center piece of my work, and there are scholars who are doing really amazing stuff recreating those stories. What I did find, and this is part, um, part because it was my focus, and, and I really went in trying to understand why white people didn't understand. Um, the origins and dynamics of their own kind of structural privilege. That was the kind of starting point for this project. And, you know, the big takeaway that I have, and I've, I've debated this, this with people for a long, long time, um, I continue to, um, is that the vast majority of white people became convinced by and kind of deeply invested in the, this mythology 
that was spread, that this was not about race, that this was about some kind of pure um, uh, choice-driven market dynamic. So one of the stories I track in there is about how sort of you know, average folks in these suburbs of, um, of Detroit, that was my local case study, how they responded in the post-war era every time someone said, hey, look, we have segregation. This is unfair. The government's involved. And what I was able to reconstruct was that they, they told a narrative about sort of meritocracy and a colorblind narrative in, part, in large part by just literally grabbing onto the very tools the very systems, um, market mechanisms that had been created by the federal government. So they literally turned to the FHA manual and said, look, no, no, just like the FHA says, this isn't about race. This is what FHA officials were arguing. I believe that they convinced themselves of that. There were certainly some people who I'm, I'm certain, you know, on the side were saying, well, good thing for this because we really don't want to live near those near those folks. But this was the master narrative. And this is, I reconstructed this not just in in, uh, public statements. I I, I looked at the correspondence between civil rights activists and FHA officials. And the FHA officials always responded to the same line, like, look, we don't shape the market. So 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 to kind of sum that up, I argue here that you know, in the, the, a broad swath of the of people who who consider themselves white in post-war America, um, uh, drank the Kool Aid, right? They bought it. It was it was really in their interest to believe that they were not complicit in this, um, and that it um, shut down. It helped shut down a lot of the great activism and the pushback for um, the fair housing activism that was um, that was um, being driven um, by these facts of discrimination. I mean, we know that. Fair housing activism got sort of a national platform finally during the civil rights movement, but there's a you know another story to be told about enforcement of the civil right of the Fair Housing Act, um, and I would argue that the pushback against that enforcement and eventually the um, disassembly of those mechanisms, which are still underway, um, are fueled by this same kind of willful ignorance that people really want really believe that there are these market forces that that operate separately from. Um, people's ideas about people, about place, about who should live with who. So I'd like to shift the discussion to your exciting book in progress, State Money, uh, where you seem to be unearthing a kind of definitely more expansive um, story that encompasses the one you've already been working through in terms of uh, racialized property. Um, And and in the book, as I understand it, you're tracing a pretty fundamental broad shift in the way that American money is structured and the role of the state in in that restructuration. Um, So I guess to start, uh, I just want to invite you to, to tell us a little bit about that story and then, you know, reflect upon how this um, puts pressure on the ways we've, um, whether it's in from orthodox perspectives or even heterodox mm-hmm. perspectives, how we've thought about American money. Mm. Yeah, the narrative part of it, I should say, I you know, I promised myself after writing Colored Property that my next project would be more, I don't know, modest and contained. <laughs> yeah, ha ha ha! Exactly. <laughs> Joke was on me. Um, and then I got this bug, and I went deep. You know, I took the deep dive into finance, and you know, 
it's the rest is the rest is what it is. Um, but so the narrative of this book is about that. Um, I should say briefly, the, the book is kind of two parts. One is it's trying to introduce historians to the long history of money and heterodoxy. So there's kind of a prefatory section that does that. And then it turns to this case study to show how, if we change the lens through which we, we look at money and finance, it reshapes familiar stories. So I look at a familiar story. Um, it's about um, – it works on many, scale, many scales, but the essential transformation is one that's really well documented by standard – um, uh, conventional histories of finance in the state. It's about the creation of the Fed and the, the transformation of its operations in its first 20, 25 years, culminating in the New Deal legislation, which sort of rebooted the Fed and turned it into kind of a different animal. Um, and the story that's kind of the hook here is one that is like like so, right, it's the kind of thing that makes people's eyes glaze over when you tell them that you're working on it. So it's about the reinvention of treasury debt. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, you can imagine like the, like the kids in class are like, "Oh, please tell me more." Um, but um, <laughs> but what I mean by by what I mean by that is is the following, right? So before World War One, investors did not go out of their way to purchase U.S. Treasury bonds. Indeed, they were seen as risky investments. Uh, experts counseled bond buyers in, in in manuals that were published at the time to avoid buying U.S. Government bonds, like the plague, stay away from that. You got to be crazy. Jump ahead to the 1930s, and that's ancient history. Treasury bonds by then are an essential component of the American financial system, and they are deemed to be as liquid as commercial debts, which are commonly called commercial paper. And this is the these are the traditional debt debt instruments that banks um, collected in order to lend money. Now, by the thirties, everyone's like, Oh, the treasury bond, that's just as liquid as, you know, a promise of an inventory or future production of goods. So what I'm, what I'm asking is how did this happen? Um, it's a really complicated story. It takes me on this pretty deep dive into the weeds of finance and policy, but the short version, sort of my haiku version is that, and this won't be in proper form, sorry, it's not like a 5750 coup, but it's basically like, you know, the U.S. government went deep into debt to fight World War I. The Fed helped it market those debts. It's something we know about, but historians have magically kind of erased from the story. In part, which means which means what? They, when you say they, to market. They literally created the money that people then used to buy, that people in banks used to buy the debt. That's why the money supply... Um, increase. So it wasn't like people had saved up and bought treasury bonds. Um, there's this wonderful um, uh, quote, what James Grant says, that um, the Fed was very generous with savers who happened to not have money, right? <laughs> so they literally put the, the created the, the, um, the, the keystrokes that allowed banks and individuals to have this really complex series of processes to buy about 20, 20 some, you know, whatever, million, billion, I can't remember the number, dollars of debt. Um, so the U.S. government goes into debt. The Fed helps make it possible. And in the 20s and 30s, a series of banking and policy interventions elevate those debts to their new prominence. And they, they have a version of that prominence ever since. The markets have changed considerably since World War II. We, we won't get into that. But, um, but they, they continue to be kind of a centerpiece of the American financial system. The other part, the meanwhile, the other part of my narrative is how experts argued over the meaning of this transformation. And I show how they reached kind of a rough consensus by the 1930s that, yeah, it was okay for the nation's banking system 
to be heavily collateralized by federal debt, right? They just completely turned the, the conventional wisdom about the value of treasury debt and the nature of, of money's asset base on its head in 30 years. Why do they make that argument? And here's the kind of the punchline. Because, in their view, money is just a commodity token that helps the private sector operate at its full capacity. So they basically embraced and refined this long intellectual tradition of viewing money this way. And by doing so, they could explain away the new state capacities and new state power over finance. Right? There's a dissenting view. You're asking about dissenting views. And I talk about um, – I think you guys have seen the shorter piece, but I, this is central to the book too. I talk about the dissenting sort of real bills view that, um, that, that challenge that. And um, we can talk about that, uh, about that later. But um, that, the, the criticism of this transformation was kind of shut down by this kind of reassertion of monetary orthodoxy. Again, it, in this view, money isn't essential to economic growth, and so the federal state's new role in backing the money supply was neither here nor there. It was just kind of a management move that protects banks and the public. So the new trade, it basically portrays this new trade in treasury debt and repeated expansions of that debt burden, right? The U.S. government's debt has only increased – well, is, is increasing to decrease, but it, is, is, it has been it has steadily been increasing over time, um, over the long run. Um, they, those become wholly compatible with this supposedly free market for finance in this um, in this new model. Now, once you look at this again familiar story about the transformation of the Fed and the role of federal debt and the role of Treasury debt, if you look at it through basically a heterodox lens, this raises a bunch of questions about the way that we understand federal policy in the 20th century and its power to shape economic outcomes. Right, it fundamentally challenges many of the conventional templates that scholars employ to discuss topics such as so-called big government, federal spending, welfare programs, partisan politics. Um, because even before the federal government got big in a conventional sense, right, during the New Deal, even before that, it had powers to shape markets that many economists are reluctant to acknowledge. So that's kind of the first big, you know, way that it challenges our conventional views of political economy. And once the Great Depression expands vastly state capacity, as we know it did, it means that federal financial and fiscal policy are at the heart of understanding both prosperity and precarity in the modern United States. They're not, it's not a discussion about when should we talk about when, when the government should act or when it shouldn't. The government, it's always there and it's always acting on these two fronts. It's, again, it's, it's really baked into the way that um, um, the, the modern political economy functions.
I was wondering if now um, perhaps we could take a deeper dive into the the real Bill's doctrine right. of the 19th century, and perhaps maybe um, you could reflect on the limits and possibilities of real Bill's doctrine versus the later um, paradigm centered on treasury debt. Right. Yeah, this is, um, did I mention things that, that uh, keep me from sleeping? Um, <laughs> add this to that list. Um, <laughs> this really gets at the most complicated part of the project, at least the, the, if the project is born a story about the mechanics of finance and one a story about the kind of intellectual and political um, negotiation of that change, this is really the most complicated part of that intellectual, political side of it. Um, and to be frank, I'm still sorting through it as I'm writing these chapters, but um, I can sort of see the answer visually, but I'm, not, I'm still trying to find a way to articulate it. But it basically goes something like this. Um, Real Bills was simultaneously um, regressive and progressive, right? Real Bills believed, um, for those who don't know about Real Bills, Real Bills was the, the, the conventional wisdom among bankers and among a lot of monetary theorists that if a bank only issued a loan when the borrower gave it a so-called real bill, which was a promise of a commercial good, again, it could be an inventory that they're going to sell. It could be the promise to build something and, and, and sell it. The theory was that then banks wouldn't issue too much money because, you know, nine times out of 10 or whatever, um, they were creating monetary instruments that would be used productively in the economy. That's a sort of a short course in real bills. Um, and they believed in what made them kind of regressive is that they actually still believed in a commodity theory of money. Um, in many ways, they are very much part of that neoclassical tradition. But what was interesting and makes them relevant for this story is that they that the Real Bill's model acknowledges the primacy of credit extension to the productive process. They do it in really different terms than heterodox and post-Keynesian folks do. But they were at least saying, look, this that that's really, really central to how things are made and exchanged, Right. That's why Real Bill's advocates freaked out when the Federal Reserve assumed all these new powers over currency between World War I and the Great Depression. They saw that the federal state was assuming the power to basically stand behind monetary issue. Um, a government promise was now standing in for a commercial promise to extend a loan. That's, again, and that's why they, you know, they're, they're sort of on my map, and I think they're very interesting historically. But again, they mistakenly insisted, and again, this is where their orthodoxy showed, um, that monetary sovereigns could not create productive capacity without distorting this mythical free market for goods. Uh, and so Real Bills was wrong, to be sure, but it was also kind of a canary in the coal mine, again, at least for students of heterodoxy, because it sounded the alarm about the consolidating um, of federal power over finance paradigm that won the battle over Fed policy, by contrast, um, is even more complicated. Um, of course, it helped to validate our current system, right, in which the Fed operates as a true central bank with lender of last resort powers, and critically, with the authority to finance U.S. government expenditures, right? It literally injects federal spending into the economy. Um, it manages the Treasury's account, um, and it couldn't do that, at least as seamlessly as it does, if it had not reinvented itself between World War I and the 1930s. 
And so in the most practical sense, the existing paradigm allows the federal government, um, explains how the, the federal government can manage and at its best sustain the domestic economy. The big problem with the, again, the orthodox treatment of this, um, of this um, new paradigm is that it masks, again, it masks the federal state's generative power. This will sound a little bit like a broken record here, but you know, economic orthodoxy insists that the modern Fed helps insulate a market for private financial instruments, and that this private market alone drives economic outcomes. Again, in that model, in this model, money's primary task is to circulate private wealth, which is then re- represented by money tokens. Um, to support this reading, again, orthodoxy insists upon these two, you know, overarching myths. Again, one, money isn't productive, and so then its issue by a sovereign is not wealth creating, which, I'm sorry, that just, that's just plain goofy. Um, <laughs> and two, um, that the existence of all this treasury debt and the active trade in that debt that, that is, again, so becomes so central to American um, finance and policy, that these are just kind of conveniences. It's a convenient instrument that enables monetary authorities to make these necessary adjustments to the supply of currency. Again, in this orthodox view, it in no way distorts or supposedly private market activity. And, and so I think what the heterodox um, challenges introduce, and MMT has been especially uh, effective at this, is that it helps people recognize first that finance is essential and economically productive, right? Money literally makes production and trade possible. And second, it highlights the central role of monetary sovereigns in sustaining modern monetary systems, right? And if you put those two together, you get a result that's really important for understanding, you know, contemporary politics, which is that both federal monetary management and federal spending are essential to making our marketplaces function. Can you now connect the dots between your central thesis in your first book and what seems to be a key thesis in this book in progress of yours. It seems like they are homologous and that the second book is kind of zooming out. Um, And, um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious if you have thoughts about that. I do. I thought that the second book was going to um, take a uh, like cast the net wider and show the range of ways in which um, federal financial and credit policies have fundamentally restructured the American economy, especially since the New Deal. That was the original plan. Um, it was originally going to be a post-war study. Um, I then learned how much there was to learn and to do on the earlier period, and my book now ends with World War II. Um, in part because the 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 telling the story for the post-war I think is even harder, and I'm I'm in awe of the people who are doing really stunning work um, in economics and in policy circles, and a handful of historians who are trying to actually reconstruct the dynamics of the post-war financial system. Um, so, but what it turned into actually is is something that's both narrower and broader. Maybe this is the answer to your question. It's narrower in that it's really just, it's literally just about, you know, in the, in the, um, in the simplest sense, it's about this transformation of, 
of the Fed and what it did to American money. So it really it 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 drills down much deeper. Um, and like whereas the the first book was really a case study in you know mortgage lending, although the book also veered off into all these other topics about zoning and property law and good stuff like that. Um, this case study is really about the you know and, and I strug- I struggled to get people to get excited about mortgage markets. Whoa. Now I get to get them to like, you know, to think, oh, look, let's talk about the Fed. Let's talk about um, liquidity and how it, ideas about liquidity have changed over time, shall we? Like, you, you know, people just literally start walking away. Um, so in, in a sense, it's gotten even more obscure, like in terms of the narrower subject. But the, the, what it, where it's gotten broader is that I'm trying to highlight how any of these case studies, case studies in this case, you know, looking at the transformation of um, the uh, Fed practices and banking and banking practices in this period. In the first book, the case of looking at a, you know, a discrete set of federal programs that financed um, housing instruction. If you look at bo- any of these case studies in context of this fundamental heterodox challenge, right, and in the context of the fact that actually money is debt, it kind of changes everything. <laughs> so, you know, in a, in a way, it's, um, it's gotten both n- narrower in a conventional sense, and a, but I'm also trying to um, link it with these first two chapters of the book, um, Wish Me Luck, which are going to, like, <laughs> you know, try to sketch out um, the broad contours of this debate, introduce historians to this stunning um, tradition of heterodox work in economics and history and sociology, which have documented um, money's you know real world history um and then say okay take a deep breath now let's look at a familiar story and how can we and what and and ask ask the reader what are some other stories kind of like your question before about um other ways to think about like structures of racial inequality what are other stories that we can rethink in light of this yeah and it seems to me that both of the books are about an obfuscation and a naturalization right. of money's design exactly. and that and that 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 is behind american processes of unjust racialization that is behind so many other um problems and possibilities and i i guess in that way i see right. this as one larger evolving project right that's really nicely put i appreciate that and what you've done is articulated a connection that is there in the work but one that i couldn't art- i couldn't i couldn't articulate it in those terms when i was writing colored property i knew that there was an obfuscation going on i knew it was broadly about you know the federal role in credit markets but what you what you've identified is in fact the link which is the mechanisms of monetary creation and debt creation are really at the center of both projects. And yes, I agree. They are um, at the center of a lot of our, I think they will help us understand a lot about um, systemic, um, systemic inequality in the modern world. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So what has working at the intersections of American history and heterodox economics, um, how, how has that, change the way you think about the relationships between empirical research on one hand and theory and speculation on the other. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. And um, I think I think that the the lesson I take away from it really applies to, to all interdisciplinary work. I again I came 
um, I came up at a moment of the the aggressive cultural turn in the humanities, um, and I was uh, swimming in that pool and learned a lot from it, um, but also became critical of what I saw as some of its excesses, which was often when it sort of uh, ignored political economy and ignored the social. Um, and the you know the lessons I took away from that is that um, that I'm one of those historians who thinks that good theory is always grounded in evidence. Um, theory is only speculative in that it suggests <clears throat> fresh or maybe hidden interpretive frameworks for understanding social reality. So I think it helps people take interpretive leaps of faith and thus to break out of what you could call a hegemonic intellectual constructs. <clears throat> and so the best theoretical work I think, on gender, on sexuality, on race, is grounded in lived experience and the documentary record. So I used to write about theories of racial difference, and I think the best work on that um, was informed by scholars and by activists who demonstrated historically that there is no thing called race, but rather that there's this constellation of power structures and practices that have invented and reinvented racial categories, right? They came up with a supportable theory, <clears throat> excuse me, because the theory was fashioned out of a documentable past and present. And I think it's the same with economic theory. Heterodox traditions are, for lack of a better term, fact-based and inherently, inherently inductive. Um, in a lot of ways, they are a throwback to the days before the marginal revolution in economics when so-called political economists or institutional economists drew upon real-world evidence to draw conclusions about economic processes. So not surprisingly, they're much more attentive to the power of institutions. Um, whereas, by contrast, neoclassical economics is for the most part a deductive science. It imagines a world of individual consumers who have perfect information. It posits that this world, if it existed, would, um, or if we could achieve it, would operate efficiently and produce resources fairly, and then explains why we don't have it, and how we can use policy, hopefully, to get closer to it. So, let me, let me put that another way really briefly. I think we all have theories of how the world works. I don't think there are objective or theory-free explanations of social phenomena, um, and that the task is to use history to determine if your theory is supportable. I'll, I'm sticking with that. Hmm. Speaking of theory just a bit longer, are there any other historians working with other heterodox economic traditions um, sort of recognizing the critique of neoclassicism but coming to different conclusions by different paths than than you are with your work oh yes there's so yes that is a really really hard question to answer i'm asking in part because it, it, it's it's true i think also in, in in other fields as well like there are you know marxists right autonomous marxists different strands of that and and all, all seem to contain a critique of neoclassicism. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, I, no I, I think that, I mean, again, I, I, I see um, heterodoxy um, kind of all over the place. Um, I think that there are um, long traditions of, again, both activism and scholarship that are basically making the equivalent of um, heterodox economic analyses. Um you know, I think back to um, – let me think about that some more. But So there are, there are so many 
um, really smart interpretive traditions, some based in Marxist political economy, some, again, built in um, working from institutionalists, the, the kind of institutional economists of the early 20th and 20th century that have reconstructed some of these stories. Did they... Did they put the? Did they, you know, um, uh, have a laser focus on on monetary instruments? No, um, but I think that they're speaking to um, these same again the way that these things are kind of baked in structurally and the way that institutions are basically shaping um, the allocation of resources. Again, that's a that's a huge one. It's a really really interesting question. I appreciate it, and I, I'm afraid I don't have a a more spot on answer. But there's so many things kind of bouncing around my head about again, both political and, and intellectual traditions that have that have done that kind of work. So if listeners haven't already recognized, um, you've been in dialogue with these largely obs- obscure schools of heterodox economics for quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. And um, I was wondering what it, what it's like to see MMT in particular become increasingly relevant and debated in the midst of what seems to us to be a paradigm breakdown, right. um, specifically for the neoliberal consensus. Right. Yeah, this has been a pretty head-spinning time for a lot of us. So I, you know, I began reading um, explicitly post-Keynesian economists while I was writing Colored Property. I stumbled upon a book by uh, Robert Gutman. I went to his footnotes, and I took it from there, and I've been doing it ever since. Um, and I quickly learned that this was part of a generations-old minority report, basically, among economists, sociologists, and scholars um, in, in several other disciplines. I learned about their forerunners, the threads. There's some really interesting threads of heter- what could be called heterodox and credit money theory, for example, in classical economics writings. And finally, um, I learned about and became a student of a lot of the post-Keynesian scholarship that um, sort of consolidated in the decades after World War II. I have enormous respect for those scholars who stuck with it. And it goes without saying, I literally could not do this work, um, both without their published work and the fact that they are helping me understand this stuff in real time. Um, And I know both from reading the debates over heterodoxy and from, again, discussions with some of its um, uh, prominent practitioners, that they are held in contempt by the mainstream economics profession. I mean, that is not an understatement. Um, but basically, they've been keeping alive a tradition of inquiry and, I think, recently have made stunning contributions to that tradition, which has the potential to transform the conventional wisdom about the relationship between the public and private sectors, right? Um, so in some respects, given that long history of sort of you know uh, pushback and repression of these ideas, it's been a surprise, yes, to see these debates kind of crash into the public sphere in the last year or so. Um, it is fun to be able to tell people who, who I've bored to tears with discussions of monetary theory, hey, look, <laughs> why don't you just open up Bloomberg and see this exchange that's going on in there? And this is some of the stuff I've been talking about. But anyway, um, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense that it's happened. Um, and I think probably for two reasons. First, one is a big, a big uh, sweeping you know, point about we know that movements, moments of political and economic crisis have always created openings for dissenting perspectives, right? That's central to understanding progressive victories in U.S. history, for example, right? Think about the labor movement, racial justice movements, LGBTQ movements, and others. Right? Dissenting voices are always there, and they're usually organizing, right? Then moments of crisis help those voices gain some leverage. It gives their protest efforts some traction. It creates an opening for more people to rethink uh, their common assumptions, right? It creates that space that I mentioned before, right, when an analytical framework 
can be challenged and maybe even transformed. And needless to say, we have been enduring an economic crisis for a long time, and now a crisis of political legitimacy. Um, I think that those things combined has made it possible for a new conversation to about economy, economic and policy alternatives to emerge. The second reason that it's not that much of a surprise is, is you know, kind of related to that broader story. Activists and heterodox economists have long been working hard to make these issues a topic of public concern, right? Um, again, I'm thinking about your other question about you know, traditions. Non-economists have been exploring what might be called heterodox theory forever, right? Like it's been central to civil rights organizing. Just take a look at... Um, you know, Turian Hamilton's 1967 Black Power, or the more recently, like the mission statements of groups like um, 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 uh, uh, BYP, right? Um, it's BYP, Black Youth Project. Mm-hmm. Right, right, I'm sorry. Um, 100, yeah, BYP 100. I mean, this it's so much, uh, it's, so, it's always been central to, um, certainly to um, black organizing. Meanwhile, heterodox economists, especially those associated with MMT, have very effectively leveraged the internet and increasingly electoral politics to get people talking about the importance of these supposedly arcane subjects, right, to understanding our contemporary political struggles. So as you know, you know they, they've been very involved in recent congressional campaigns. Um, Stephanie Kelton's been an, adv- an advisor to, um, to, was an advisor to um, uh, Bernie's presidential campaign. So if you put all these ingredients together, right, crisis and all the hard work of dissent, it makes sense that Stephanie Kelton and Paul Grugman are duking it out in the pages of Bloomberg and New York Times, <laughs> or that Randy Ray is being interviewed by major press outlets, which, you know, gives me, you know, so much joy. Um, but it's, it's still very disorienting, sure, uh, as someone who's been, you know, a student of this for 10 years. Those people who've been doing it their entire lives, I'm sure that they're like, you know, pinch me, right? Um, so it's disorient, disorienting, sure, but I think there's an historical logic to it nonetheless well david freund thank you so much for coming on our show thank you so much for having me it's really a pleasure and i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of your program 